for those who fish, this is the Drake Cast, a voice for culture and conservation within fly fishing. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. For this episode of the Drake Cast, we're really proud to introduce a new sponsor. So we're on the South Platte in Denver, trying to catch some carb. This is Ross White, the founder and manufacturer behind Deli Fresh Design, a fly fishing apparel company based in Denver, Colorado. Just the genesis of it was making a bag for myself that satisfied all my needs, you know, held my boxes, held my tippet leaders, and it was really easy to use and simple. And so I've just been exploring that as a company. Maybe six months ago, I I realized that I shouldn't be using new materials. I should also be exploring repurposed and recycled fabrics and materials that could go into the bag. Deli Fresh Design makes quality fly fishing apparel out of recycled materials, following the idea that you should spend less time thinking about your gear and more time chasing fish. Over the next few episodes, we'll take a look at their entire product line, and if you keep your ears peeled, you might end up with a freebie. In the meantime, you can check out Deli Fresh Design on their website, delifreshdesign.com, or via social media, at Deli Fresh Design. Go give them a look. But right now, it's time to move on to the show. About a month ago, I found myself in the woods of North Georgia with a man I had never met before. Yeah, so this is the North Georgia wilderness. We're in a national forest area called the Cojeta. What the hell you think you're doing? And this section of woods was pretty darn close to where the movie Deliverance took place. Now let's you just drop them pants. Just take them right off. Them panties. Take them off. Instead of being told to squeal like a piggy, we were making some other noises. This is kind of up and down for turkey hunting. There are turkeys here, but it's, it's tough, man. A lot of up and down hiking. Already breaking a sweat. We've only been out of the car for 30 minutes. This is Zach Matthews. He's an Ozark boy that now practices law near Atlanta, but thanks to his skills as a writer and photographer, he's also a good friend of the Drake magazine. And Zach had agreed to show me one of his favorite places in all of Georgia. We're just making some calls and hoping to hear a response. Yeah, see if we can't get a a bird to come. They'll they'll usually move our direction, and those birds are, they've they've come off the roost, and they're just kind of wandering the forest floor, feeding, looking for hens, unless they've already got a hen. In which case, good luck, because they're not going to leave her for you. It's like, you got to leave his wife. Now, I know this is a fishing podcast, but seeing as it was turkey season, it would have been a shame not to carry around a shotgun or two. You're doing a female turkey call. That's right. We were trying to sound like a sexy, sexy turkey who just can't wait to find herself a tom, which is uh, it's kind of ironic if you think about it, because it's like all these manly men turkey hunters wandering the woods in their full camo with their shotguns and gear and they're sort of gender bending the whole time. I don't think they like to think about it like that. I find it amusing. This jaunt of turkey calling was to serve as the appetizer to our main course, which was to be a heaping platter of fish. But not just any old fish. We were there in hopes of finding a hidden gem. uh, Essentially these are the southernmost brook trout in the world, southernmost native brook trout. 
that I can find on a map and I've been looking for about a decade, so pretty special place and it's beautiful. Today, we traverse the mountains of North Georgia with Zach Matthews in search of wild native brook trout. But while we're at it, we'll also take a trip to another fishery just down the road that claims to be a world-class trout stream. However, there is a big difference between these two places and the fish that they hold. By the end of the episode, you'll have to decide what you consider to be a true trophy fish. So stick around. Of course, we didn't hear or see a turkey, so it was time to transition to the second phase of the adventure. All right, so we're gonna make our way back to the car. We've, uh, I think we've been a little bit of the victim of weather because there's been the tail end of a storm moving through. We're gonna wait her up, but we're gonna leave our camo on. We're gonna hunt our way down to the brook trout stream. And then when we make our way up to the other end of the brook trout stream, there's a big flat. So we'll, uh, we'll pack our shotguns and, uh, you know, just go balls out, see what we get. As we hiked back to the car, Zach pointed out various trees and explained how this hillside told the history of the Southeast United States. This whole area, like really a lot like the Smokies in Tennessee and North Carolina, this was all logged in the 20s and 30s. And, and actually we're standing on a logging road. In the early days, they would cut these and use mules to haul the logs out. They'd drag them along the road. Some places north of here, they would build uh, little impoundment dams in the creeks and back the water up, load it up with logs, and then they would blow the dam with dynamite. And the logs would all go barreling down the river, like crazy log style, until they would get to a sawmill, which would usually be in kind of a bottomland area where they could live. And that, that's how they essentially denuded the entire southeast hillside. But as loggers made their way deeper and deeper into the hills of North Georgia, their methods took a toll both on the trees and the trout. The big creek had brook trout in it as late as the 1920s, and it was logging that wiped them out. And so people put rainbows in back then, you know, you know, kind of misguided effort to put trout back. And unfortunately, Georgia has a long history of taking streams that once held brook trout and throwing non-native species in there. And right now, we're going to take a step back in time to one of those places. Because a little over a year ago, a friend told me about this stream that was public but required reservations, almost like a tea time at a golf course. And to be honest, I had no idea what to expect, but I had heard good things and knew I needed to check it out. Good morning. Can you say where we are? Okay, yeah, um, so we are just outside of Helen, Georgia on Alternate 75. I had heard about this stream that was public but required reservations, almost like a tea time at a golf course. And to be honest, I really had no idea what to expect. <laughs> and it is um, semi-privatized. So we're actually a conservation park. We're also owned by DNR, but we're a conservation park and we do hunting, fishing, and this place is called Duke's Creek. Would you mind if I recorded this? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, cool. <laughs> Could you tell me a little bit about 
this fishery and what exactly is going on? Okay, so we are one of the premier trophy trout streams in Georgia. And it's basically, it's by reservation only. We allow 15 fishermen on the stream at a time and we do it every Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. During the winter, we have full day sessions that run from 7.30 to 4.30. And then during the spring, we do two a day. And the morning session goes from 7.30 to 1.30, the afternoon from 1.30 to 6.30. And the fish that we're seeing in here, are they gonna be naturally reproducing? Are they stocked? We do have natural reproduction going on. Um, it's stocked twice a year, once in the fall and once in the spring. But, and yeah, since it's all catch and release and barbless hooks, I mean, the fish grow in there for years and years and years, and they're very smart, very tough to catch. They know what's going on. Um, but yeah, we check it every year, and every year we do have reproduction, so. Though the natural reproduction side of the fishery is pretty cool, most of the big, big fish in the park were stocked at 16 plus inches. Additionally, in the words of Trout Unlimited's list of 100 best trout streams, I quote, Oh, to keep these trout happy in a stream that's seldom wider than 25 feet, park staff scatter fish food every night. In other words, these fish are pellet heads. What is the cost of all of this? It is actually free. It's $5 for parking. Do you fish? I do. I've only fished her once, actually. Caught the biggest fish of my life. <laughs> it was like a 22-inch brown. It's really awesome. It took me about 12 minutes to get it in. I thought I was going to lose it because it just kept going and going to the like falls that were coming over. And then it would sit and then go down some rocks and logs. and. <laughs> Eventually it wore out and I called it. <laughs> Anything else I should know about this whole setup? People say that you have to pay your dues to Dukes. So basically your first time fishing here, it's pretty likely you might not catch anything. Because <laughs> you have to learn the stream and learn the fish. and. Yeah. <laughs> but still you're out enjoying nature. It's a beautiful day. You know, still a good time even if you don't catch anything. And so with all of this information... Can I sit with you? Cool. I loaded into the shuttle van and met my fellow fishermen for the day. 65 is about the temperature you can do a lot of things without sweat. The combination of the chit-chat and nervous energy reminded me of my parents dropping me off at summer camp. I didn't know anyone and my insecurities immediately told me that I no longer knew how to make friends. What are you guys starting with? I'm, I actually brought my, my spin rod. I'm a little frustrated with my fly rod right now. One by one, we dropped off the other anglers. Until it was just the driver and me in the car. Awesome, thanks for the ride. All right, have a good one. I'll now. see you in a couple hours. All right, good luck now. From there, I proceeded to walk up one of the stranger trout streams I've ever fished. In many sections, the creek was only four feet wide, but every hundred yards or so was punctuated by a hole with half a dozen fish over two feet long. I pulled a little guy out of a riffle, but felt a bit miffed about the entire situation. The fishery felt more like a viewing pond outside of a hatchery where kids can throw marshmallows to grossly oversized fish than it did a trout stream. And after a three hour walk, I heard the van honking its way down the gravel road. How you doing? Pretty good, man, how about you? Oh, not too bad. Beautiful day to be out yeah, here, right? Yeah, how's it going? Oh, I popped one, but. Yeah. I fished last Wednesday. I got skunked. I had one take the whole day. Sad. Yeah. I, tough water, man. Yeah, tough is. water. You seen any fish? Yeah, in like the in the spots where like you know there's gonna be fish. There are a few. 
They call Duke's Creek a trophy trout stream. And if you're going off of sheer size, I guess it is a trophy trout stream. But by this definition, so is the aquarium at Cabela's. Thankfully, what Zach had planned for us after turkey hunting was about as far from the stocked fish of Duke's Creek as you can imagine. Can you just scene set what we're doing right now and where we're- Yeah. This is a very peculiar area where two creeks converge into this river. And so that, that convergence is this really, really rippled canyon in this zone where we're gonna basically almost rappel in and we're gonna, we're gonna walk, but it's a little shady. Um, and then we're gonna wade across the creek, which is a little high right now. And we're gonna then work our way up this absolutely gorgeous slot canyon covered in green moss, full of brook trout. Very cool. Are these natives, are they, were they planted here? Um, there are a lot of intermingled species of brook trout in the southeast where northern brookies got worked in with southern brookies. But this particular population, all 100% native. We slipped into our waders and stuffed the ghillie suits and turkey calls into our packs. I learned to brook trout fish from a guy named Hans in the Smokies, just absolute guru master brook trout fisherman. And I was fishing downriver one day and I come to Hans and I'm, I'm going to imitate his accent, although it's terrible. And I'm, I'm sort of getting in his way, coming down river on him, not knowing any better. And I looked at him, I'm like, hey, what's your name? He goes, I'm Hans. I'm like, hey, Hans, how many, uh, how many brook trout have you caught? He goes, 37. How many have you caught? And I was like, none. What are you doing differently? And I looked down, he's wearing like tile setters, you know, foam pads. And he's like, you'll need to fish with me. So he takes me. He turns me, literally turns me around. And we fish back up a place I have just walked through. And I'm like, this ain't gonna work. It was like a freaking Dyson vacuum cleaner. The guy going up river, he just caught fish in every hole. He probably caught 60 or 70 brookies that afternoon and just showed me what he was doing. Lots of, lots of fly floating, squeeze flies to squeeze the water out. Not a lot of flicking back and forth. A lot of dapping so that you're not flicking around getting in cotton trees. You can't help yourself sometimes. Um, not a lot of tippet. You know, you might only have six feet a liter and you're just you're sticking it in holes and slow spots behind rocks most of what you do here is not exactly casting you're more like dapping your way up the river and for those who don't know what dapping is can you explain it's it's essentially kind of like tenkara fishing you 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 lift the rod dab or dap the fly into a pool we'll talk about the brook trout when we get there but brookies are very vertically oriented in terms of cover so their their big concern is making sure birds don't get them so they'll go and hide underneath like a little pool where there's like a little ripple scene. And that's what you look for. You drop your, drop your fly in the white foam and the brookies will come off the bottom. Like you don't ever see them. They're, they're, they're camo. Although they're so beautiful, you'd never believe. You'll never see one until it comes up and nails your fly. And then you're like, well, crap, how did I miss that? As Zach described the fishing techniques, a truck rolled past us looking warily at our hybrid fishing hunting outfits. That was our first uh, truck of the day that we've seen in here. Two rednecks looking to make a little meth. <laughs> and with our sights set on brook trout, we headed into the jungly brush of the North Georgian National Forest. There was no trail, no shuttle service, no cell phone coverage, and no welcome center. All of this may have explained why we got lost. Two stream crossings, half a liter of sweat, and a nearly broken rod later, we had arrived at the creek. I mean, I think it's probably the most beautiful spot in Georgia.
But before we can dive any deeper into this blessed Georgian honey hole, we have to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode of the DrakeCast is also sponsored by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. My name is Camille Egdorf. I work at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures in Bozeman, Montana, and we are a travel agent specializing in fly fishing travel all over the globe. And before Camille began working for Yellow Dog, she grew up guiding at a fishing lodge up in Alaska, which she still visits every year. So I went up to Alaska to do two hosted trips for Yellow Dog, took a couple groups up to my parents' place on the upper Nushigak, and uh, yeah, spent two weeks targeting rainbow trout, grayling, dolly varden, you know, several different species of Pacific salmon. The state really comes alive during the summer, and it solely evolves around the salmon that are there. Being able to share that with others and, and see other people light up when they see the spawning event and catch that 24 to 25 inch rainbow on a mouse and seeing the bald eagles and the bears, it's a special experience. And uh, being able to share it with others is probably one of the coolest things. With the sockeye spawn just around the corner, consider booking a trip to the last frontier with Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. They'll make sure to put you in the right spot. This episode is also brought to you by Scott Fly Rods. The other day, I called up Josh Lively, who guides for Roaring Fork Anglers in Basalt, Colorado. He told me what makes Scott Fly Rods special. You know, we could talk about how great these rods cast or the heritage of Scott, but to think that those rods are all handcrafted by blue-collar American workers, they wake up every day and handcraft the finest fly rods made. It's just really cool to, to see that, you know, to know the, the pride that's going into that rod. It's always cool when I get to go to the factory and give everybody a high five and bring them a case of beer and donuts. Thanks, Josh. You can find out more information at your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. Alrighty, just before we left, Zach and I had stumbled upon what he deemed to be. I mean, I think it's probably the most beautiful spot in Georgia. It's a slot canyon. Um, It's really not on any map, and I'm absolutely not going to tell anyone where it is. I think we're probably looking at about a 20 to 40 foot drop just within about 100 feet and they kind of cascade in a stair step. Each stair step is an independently isolated, I mean almost like a sky island. I mean these are, the canyon, it reminds me of like a granite mossy colored version of what I saw in the desert southwest like in Arroyo and I mean there's a lot of granite exposed. It's approximately the color of Ireland. We took turns dapping an oversized stonefly into the churned water below each waterfall. Five-inch brook trout flew out of the water to crush our bug. What action have we had so far? We've been attacking them with the fly that's too large. <laughs> they have a brook trout. Actually, if you've ever caught a brook trout, you know they've got a different mouth than a rainbow trout. They have more of a trapdoor structure, and the tip of their jaw is more pointed. Two things happen there. They can eat bigger flies for their length. But there's a little bit less like at the front of their mouth for a hook point to grab onto. So unless they hit a fly just right, a lot of times it won't actually hook into their mouths, which is what has happened. So we're going to switch to a smaller fly now uh, to imitate that little tiny stone fly that just landed on my hand. Uh, probably some variant of a little yellow sally. I mean, that sucker was what, like a 16? That was a little stone fly. And we'll, uh, we'll see if we can't do a little better in this beautiful pool below us. Cool. As Zach tied on a smaller fly, I asked him what makes these fish so special. I am pretty sure from my research, has never been stocked with brook trout. This area was stocked with rainbows. And uh, essentially these are the southernmost brook trout in the world, the southernmost native brook trout that I can find on a map. And I've been looking for about a decade. So these brook trout have literally been here 
for at least 12,000 years. They reproduce themselves here. Nobody's helping them out. Nobody's hurting them. Nobody's messing with them. We, we of course, release every one we catch. Use barbless hooks. And uh, they're not big. You know, they might max out at eight or nine inches long, but this is it. This is the, the terminus, the last refuge. From an ecological standpoint and a historical standpoint, if you're into that, it's amazing. And from just an aesthetic standpoint, it is absolutely gorgeous. Zach and I hypothesized how these fish manage to stay off the radar and avoid stocking. And the, and the reason why there's brook trout here and not everywhere else, if you look around you right now, you'll see some larger trees, like that one on that big rock back there. I mean, that was not loggable. You couldn't climb out on that rock and cut that hemlock down. And as a result, this particular area has retained a little bit of its original character. It didn't get as much runoff, so the water temperatures did not go up as much. The big creek that we cut across had brook trout in it as late as the 1920s, and it was logging that wiped them out. And so people put rainbows in back then, you know, you know, kind of misguided effort to put trout back. And the rainbows outcompete the brook trout almost everywhere except above 3,000 feet because the brookies are better adapted for that. The way I look at it is, if the rainbows could get in here from the creek that this ultimately feeds, they totally would. And there's a reason that the rainbows are not here, and it's probably a combination of temperature, the waterfall drop, and elevation. We continued up the canyon and found some less steep water where the fish were able to actually get their mouths around our flies. So we got up to the canyon. We did. It was, uh, it was high. It was a little sketchy to be honest. But it was cool because the upper area behind the canyon which is almost always a trickle by the time I get to it, was actually running pretty well and fished okay. We actually got a couple nice fish up there by, you know, by the standards of this creek. And you got to remember, five inches of fat, thick brookie is a healthy, mature fish here. It's interesting that they don't really seem to, like, lose their par marks and stuff. That must just be, like, a size thing. Um, but those fish totally spawn. You can see nine-inch brook trout sitting in the middle of a hole and it just looks like a looks like a hammerhead shark you know because of the the context that it's in can you just describe what these fish look like they are unbelievably colorful and it's especially surprising when they slam your fly and as they come off the bottom it's it's just like a piece of shadow detaches from the bottom of the river and then you get them in and suddenly in your hand it's a total clown car i mean you just have yellow spots and red spots and the, the striations on their back and they're just so pretty very cool so why do you come up here i mean these fish aren't trophies they are trophies if you understand the context and you got to understand where you are this is the absolute edge of their habitat and the fact that you have a native trout in georgia where there are not supposed to really be trout as far as people, you know, the average person understands, is, is still amazing. I mean, this fish has been here since the last ice age, and they are, they're big for where they live, and they are living out their entire life cycle right here. You know, if you know that exists and you would prefer to go catch a pellet-fed pig, then you are welcome to do that, but that's not the kind of fisherman that I want to be. The choice is yours. When you have a day to go fishing, what trophy will you be chasing?
anything else to add? Hey man, just uh, what I would say is I would encourage people who want to have resources like this at their disposal to do your research, not just by asking around or jumping on the internet. I mean, people, I, I think people understand that I have kind of a web presence and probably think of me as a guy that, you know, goes on the internet and finds out what to do, but that's not always the case. I mean, this came from research with biologists, you know, 12 years ago, and we still haven't, you know, let people know exactly what this is. But I will tell you, things like this exist in every state. There's always a place in your state that has something worth having. A lot of times it's gonna be a native fish, and that might be a red-eye bass, it might be a sauger, it might be a gar, red horse sucker, there you go. Yeah, those are delicious, by the way. But if you will take the time to figure that out and then throw away other people's preconceptions of what is valuable, just what matters to you is what matters. And you'll have something that other people won't mess with that will be a pleasure to you for your whole lifetime. What's not to like about that? And what Zach was saying reminded me of a conversation I had had with Michigan slash Arkansas guide Alex Lapkus about discovering new fisheries. What we're seeing is more people having the desire to go and try new fisheries and to explore them and to try new techniques to pull fish. People have to not be afraid to not catch a fish a day. Go learn something. Go somewhere you don't know. Take a chance. It's okay. That's kind of the fun part of fishing and all these people just want it handed to them now. Oh man, well I read on the internet I want to float from here to here and it's going to take this long and this is where the fish should be. You know, well obviously that's old news. If it's written about, everybody knows it. Why don't you try something different? So go out there and find it. Georgia. A big shout out to Zach Matthews for showing me around for this episode. His podcast, The Itinerant Angler, was really the OG of fly fishing podcasts. Not only was it the first, all of his episodes are super informative. His training as a lawyer has made him a fantastic interviewer. There's something like 7 million episodes out there available. Go find it on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Cheers to the fine folks at Duke's Creek. Sorry for the harsh review. It's probably cooler that I'm lighting on. Go check it out. But make sure to call ahead and get a reservation. In about seven days, the summer 2018 issue of the Drake magazine will hit fly shops and mailboxes around the country. Next week, we're going to sit down with editor, founder, and owner of the Drake, Tom Bai, and discuss what he was thinking 20 years ago when he started the magazine. We'll also talk about the contents of the summer 2018 issue. We'll hear from some contributors, and finally, we'll take an audio journey through the urban fisheries of Southern California. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.